Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. I'm your host, Chris Graves, and on today's episode, we're sitting down with Dr. Michael Kasich. Dr. Kasich is a professor at Stephen F. Austin State University, my alma mater, and he was my professor of foreign policy and a terrorism class, which I took with him. I was also his instructor for a couple intro-level political science classes, so needless to say, I got a lot of time getting to know Dr. Kasich, and I'm really thankful for the, the relationship that we've built over these years, and I think that friendship and that mutual respect comes through in the episode, which I'm really excited that we got to sit down and record. I wanted to take some time to get into Dr. Kasich's career, his teaching philosophies, and just him personally, but I also wanted to get into some different political issues of, of the day and kind of get his feedback, his thoughts, which aren't they're not typical. They're not your standard left-right narratives, but they're more nuanced. They're more thoughtful, and I thought I, I think give people an interesting way of looking at the issues that you don't normally hear in the media today. In future episodes with Dr. Kasich, I hope to kind of have a list of issues, and and that's what we tackle. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. You enjoy our discussion, and if you've got any feedback or issues you would like to hear us discuss in future episodes, please email me. It never hurts to ask pod at gmail.com. Thanks and enjoy the episode. All right. So we're back with another episode of it never hurts to ask. I am here with the incredible, brilliant Dr. Michael Kasich. Uh, Dr. Kasich is, uh, was a professor of mine at Stephen F. Austin State University. Uh, you taught me in foreign policy, mm-hmm. and I also helped teach some of your uh, intro to political science right. classes. You were an SI, right? Yeah, yes. supplemental yeah. instructor. Dr. Kasich, you were a political science professor. That's right. Um, but you didn't start your career in academia. Right. What did you originally go to school for? So I went to school, I I majored in political science and uh, really thought I would go to graduate school right up until about the time to take the leap. And uh, there's my family. Uh, I I just got, uh, at the time, this is back in the mid 80s, at the time, uh, if you went to a top grad school, you were expected to learn two languages. And the thought of I struggled through French, the thought Same. the thought of trying to get Arabic and French down, or or Mandarin and French down, or whatever it might be. I honestly I just kind of freaked out about it, and uh, uh, I, I should have done more research because in in fact I probably could have done stats. And all you need to do is show you can read a language, and you know reading a language is different than speaking a language. So I think I could have gotten through it. Um, and sometimes I wonder if, if, if it wasn't all one of those meant to be things, um, because I missed the end of the cold war, which, uh, I would have been writing my dissertation right as the Soviet union collapsed. And I think my dissertation would have been outdated within weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been about how the Soviet union is almost ready to take the world over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, So anyway, so I decided, well, you know, what else can I do? Well, you know, I've got good grades. I'm kind of bright. Why don't I sit for the uh, LSAT? And I sat for the LSAT and did well on it. And so I thought, why not? Which is the wrong reason to go to law school. Yeah. Completely the wrong reason. Um, 
but 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 you know I, I knew that I knew that if I if I went to law school I had to go to a good school because I didn't think I was going to be number one in my class and that that was that was a fact um, so I knew I had to go to a real good school to still get a good job and that's what I did. Where did you go to school? For I went law to law school. I went to law school at Duke. I did my undergrad at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. For anyone who watches uh, the NCAA tournament, congrats on uh, your upset. Thank you very much. Even two years ago, it still still feels good. Uh, and then I went to, as I said, I went to Duke University for law school and, and did that. And I knew, I knew the first day it wasn't for me, but you know, I wasn't going to quit. Don't be a quitter. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasted three years of my life and uh, uh, took on a lot of debt, which in turn forced me to go down the path of big law. I might still be a lawyer if I'd gone and worked for State Department or something like that, but instead I went and worked for big law, and that was a pretty miserable existence. And, and what did you do? So we, I was in the bank and finance division, and so a lot of what we did was represent lenders in uh, leverage buyouts. Um, we also did uh, some secured lending transactions, airplane leases. I actually wrote an article on how to take a security interest in rolling stock. Fascinating stuff. My eyes already rolled over. <laughs> so was all of that work as boring and soul-sucking as it sounds just listening to you talk about it? It, it was for me. Like I said, I think... I think you can do a lot of neat things with law. I just wasn't mature enough at the time. I, I was, I didn't know. I thought all lawyers went to big law firms or else practiced, you know, uh, ambulance chasing. And why didn't you want to do that or criminal defense or, or any of that? But being in a courtroom uh, didn't, didn't appeal to me. I don't know. It just wasn't very interesting. Um, and, 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 and transactional law, you really need a good background in numbers and I didn't have that uh, you need you know if you're going to do transactional work you really at, at a minimum need uh, an accounting degree and what is transactional offer people transactions uh, that's deals okay. so we're going to buy uh, a billion dollar company and you got to set the financing up the strategy part of it is interesting but when you're an associate you're not doing the strategy part but it sounds like you were doing that kind of work I was doing I was doing that kind of work but I wasn't doing the fun part you know there's there's one quarterback on the team and there's a bunch of linemen. <laughs> so you were basically on the back end doing all the paperwork, checking yeah, for right. comma splices and yeah, 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 yeah. typos and stuff. Right, right. Exciting. Due diligence and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. One of the, so for people listening, one of the reasons Dr. Kasich is, is on this episode is I personally find him fascinating, um, both in my academic career and in, on in my personal life. You've always been a, uh, a very... What's the word I'm looking for? Sage giver of advice, we'll call it. <laughs> um, it's funny you talk about how you didn't like law school, because I don't know if you remember, but you're the one who talked me out of law school. When I was wrapping up my academic career, I told you I was thinking about law, and you sat me down and you said, Mr. Graves, you're a very bright, you're a very bright young man, and I think you would do, you told me, I think you would do well at law school. I think you might even do really well at law school, and I think you would be a successful lawyer. But I know you're similar enough in me personality-wise that no matter how successful you are at it, you're going to hate your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, and you told me, don't do it. And that was the last I thought about law school. That, you know, I try not to tell people do or don't do. And that, that listening to you say that makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm I should, glad you did. I should always let people make their own decision, you know, lay out the facts and let them make the decision. Because, you know, if you go into law school, maybe you'd be making, you know, 
$100,000 a year. Yeah, but I'd be spending 70 of it on a Coke habit or who knows what horrible <laughs> vice. Because I don't, I don't know, with the exception of a, a couple people, or my guest later today, right. you excluded, most lawyers don't enjoy it. They're all, all pretty unhappy. It might give them the money to do other things, yeah. but none of them go to work happy. Lawyers get paid to fight. Yeah. And most of us don't really like to fight. I mean, it's it's unpleasant, right? It's it's the adrenaline gets up, and 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 it's it's unpleasant. People like to avoid conflict, and lawyers seek out conflict. So, if you're that type of person, I suppose it's it's a good job. Um, but again, if you know, if you find the right, a law is just a filter that goes over a magnifying glass that goes over top of something else. If you can find the right something else, for me, it would have been national security. Yeah. I could have been a lawyer in the national security uh, uh, service. And, and, and You would have been the one writing the torture memos. Absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> or, 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 or writing the other side of the memos, but that's the sort of work you would do, and it might be interesting. Drafting treaties, believe it or not, could be kind of interesting. Um, the other problem with law is the debt. I think the I think a law degree is great. I, I'm still glad I went to law school, but the debt is is overwhelming and forced me to go into a type of law that I didn't want to, and and would force you to do the same thing. I mean, if you're walking around with two hundred grand in your pocket, great, it's a great education. But for normal people like you and I, you better like what you're doing. And I think Sean, who you're going to talk to later, loves what he's doing. So I'm, and he's very successful and he's very good at it. Um, but I think it takes a special type of person. So uh, I want to kind of continue on in your career. So you're a lawyer. You're making, I assume you're, even though you're unhappy, you're probably making pretty good money. I was making more money than, than I'm making now if you, if you factor in cost of living. and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Which so is distressing to me. <laughs> so you're making good money. Yeah. Um, I assume you live in pretty comfortable, but you're unhappy with your career, with right. your life. So what, how do you get from, an unhappy, well-paid lawyer to a professor of political science. Right. So you got to be willing to make a 180 degree turn when you're 30 years old. Was there, was there a, an event, a catalyst that made this decision where you, or were you just drunk one night and said, ah, fuck it. Or yeah. <laughs> what, what is it? I want to kind of understand the, what made you make that 180? Was it a slow 180 or was it kind of like one night the decision's made? And that's, no, that, 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 that's a good question. It, it was slow, but it came upon me quickly, if that makes sense. So the slow end of it was, you know, believe it or not, there was a time I would go to a gym and work out. And when I would be riding the bike, I'd be reading foreign affairs. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've definitely seen you walk with a book. That's <laughs> <Okay>. almost exercise. <laughs> I would, um, I would be riding the bike and reading foreign affairs. So the love for foreign affairs was still there with me. Um, and even and, in college, you were a foreign policy international guy. It's always been national security, international security. Yeah, that's always yeah. been what I've been interested in. Um, a little bit of re area studies, they used to call it, but really. Is that comparative? Yeah, politics? yeah, okay. yeah. So, f f you know, growing up in the 80s, the Middle East, well, the Middle East is always hopping. But, you know, that was when the New Jersey was lobbing shells over Lebanon. And, and that was pretty fascinating to me. Uh, but even that, the, my bent was towards security. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a combination of things. You, you would go out to the pub on Friday night and have a few drinks and uh, start talking about foreign policy. And it, at some point I realized, well, there's like 12 people in a circle around me listening to me. You know, I'm teaching right now. Like, I don't even know what I was doing. I mean, I'm drinking a beer and talking, but what I was really doing was teaching. And I thought, 
this is great. I really like this. I like this a lot more than what I do during the day. And you know, if you that, and then you get up on Monday and you hate your life and go through the week miserable and you go back out Friday night and do the same thing, really enjoy what you're doing. So a bunch of small events like that built up. Uh, and, and finally I just decided I, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, so I, while I was practicing law, I prepped for the uh, GRE, took the GRE, applied to schools, um, and that's and that's once I got into a school that I felt comfortable with, that's when uh, I that's when I've told my father I'm quitting, and he still to this day twitches when this conversation brings up <laughs> comes up. He doesn't he's not too happy that I did because he comes from a different generation where you don't give up a job making good money and security. And and uh, another thing, Chris. Every one of my roommates from law school is a multimillionaire. No, oh, sure. They're all partners in major law firms. You know, Skadden Arps, um, Sidley Austin, uh, one in Richmond. Uh, these guys are all making a ton of money. If you um, had stayed on that path, would you have made partner? Or do you think you would have flamed out? No, not in a disrespectful. Uh, no, no, manner. no, no, no. I, I, I don't know because uh, those guys. Those guys were all just shaped a little bit different than me inside. I, I think. I think I probably could have been successful, but I know I would have never been happy. Yeah. So I don't know, does that mean a heart attack at 40 or 50? I'm not sure how that plays out, but I think probably a, a much less pleasant human being to be around. <laughs> <laughs> so you get into grad school, right? You go right. back to school, right. where are you going to grad school? So I got into Columbia uh, for their master's program. And uh, I completed their master's program in one year and then got into their PhD program, uh, but I didn't get funded. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, living in New York costs a lot of money. Right. Uh, so I, I applied to Maryland sort of, I don't want to say as a backup, but I applied to Maryland as well because there were a couple of people down there, uh, a guy named George Quester and a guy named Ted Gurr who had you know international reputations. At one point, Ted Gurr, I think, was the most cited political scientist in the world. So I got funded at Maryland. And so I, you know, to this day that, that hacks me a little bit because, you know, that Ivy League PhD would have, would have looked nice on the wall. Uh, but I got a great education at Maryland, met some of the best people I've ever met in my life and had two really good mentors in Gurr and Quester. If you had done this all over again, if you hadn't gone to law school, if out of, out of undergrad, you could have gone gotten your master's, gotten your PhD, and you could have gone anywhere, where would you have wanted to go? Assuming cost wasn't an option, if you were getting in, you could get your political science PhD well, and, and upper education, where would you have wanted to go? Well, I think everybody wants to go to Harvard, right? Do they? I would have. Uh, okay. Uh, my, my, my nephew uh, just got into Harvard uh, on a full ride for his PhD in biochemistry. Kid's a smart kid. Um, you know, okay. Maybe Stanford, but 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 I think I think Harvard still to this day is for 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 uh, political science that'd be the place to go. Okay, Columbia was good. I mean, there were good people at sure. Columbia. I'm not gonna. Um, but but Harvard, Harvard, come on, it's Harvard. Yeah. So you get into you you get into Maryland. You finish your PhD. You're now Doctor Kasich. Right. Uh, where does your career take you from there? <laughs> Because you, know, you don't, you don't get a PhD in political science, and just people start throwing out the red carpet for you to hire you, do they? Well, it, it, I'm, I'm laughing because 
this conversation, I was I was wondering what kind of interviewer you would be, and and well, <laughs> a you would, garbage one. No, no, no. I think you're actually pretty good at, good at it because what you're doing is forcing me to recount mistake after mistake after mistake <laughs> in my life. So I got uh, uh, I'm looking for a job. What happens? Well, there you know there's a uh, 50 political science jobs that open up in a year, whatever it might be, and you write them a letter. You send them your resume. You uh, tell them who your your references are. Well. I had gone to law school, and my letters all would say, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, enclosed, please find, and I'd list the things that I had enclosed. Uh, should you have questions or comments, please contact me. When you're looking for a job in academia, you write a three-page letter about what your research is about, about, about how you teach, about what your philosophy is. I never did any of that. I would just send out these one-line one, one letters. And... Um, so I was getting no offers. <laughs> I was getting no. I was getting no callbacks, no offers, and like an idiot, I didn't ask anybody, "What am I doing wrong?" I just kept sending these letters out. And, you know, I had a couple of publications as an under as, as a graduate student, and so I should have been getting callbacks. I had really good, you know, Gurren Quester, internationally known. Um, so I finally get uh, a callback. I get two callbacks. One is to Seton Hall. And the other is SFA. And the SFA job was actually... Uh, and for people who aren't from Texas, what is SFA? SFA is Stephen F. Austin State University, which is a, a, a regional public university in East Texas. is where I teach now. It's where you got your, graduate, uh, got your degree. Um, the SFA actually was somebody called Marilyn and said, we're looking for somebody. And a professor of mine grabbed me in the hallway and said, are you looking for a job? And I almost told him no, because I thought he wanted me to do work for him. Yeah. <laughs> but what he wanted to do was set up this interview. So I interviewed at these two places um, and uh, uh, wound up at SFA. What made you choose? What, what, why SFA over Seton Hall? So this is, this is pretty fascinating. Um, well, it's not fascinating, but, but, but it goes back to why I got out of law. Um, Seton Hall was great. I mean, it is, it's 15 minutes from New York City. It's right across the river. Um, it was uh, a, 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 a sort of a diplomacy program. Their dean was a former lawyer, and uh, he liked me. Um, but I, I had to remind myself, why are you getting into this? Is it for prestige? Well, no, that's kind of why you got into law. You're getting into this so you can enjoy life and, and relax and be happy. And living as a professor outside of Manhattan, I'd never be able to afford a house. Whereas living here, well, we're sitting here in my house, and it's not the greatest house in the world, but it's a nice house. Yeah. In a big yard, I got a dog. Um, tonight, when I get back from church, I'm going to grab a beer and go cook a steak. And this is the life I wanted, and I had to remind myself at that point, because Seton Hall's in the Big East, and at the, at the time in the Big East, and you know, a known basketball team. sort of. I almost got caught up in that thing again, the same thing that led me to Los Angeles to practice law. Um, and and I'm, I'm happy that I stopped myself. I want to teach. I want, to, I want to be at a place where I can relax and enjoy my life. And so that's, that's why I wound up here. Yeah. Does that explain it? No, that was yeah. good. That was yeah. good. Um, and you are, this is, I don't want this to turn into an ad for Stephen F. Austin State University because they're not paying me shit for it. <laughs> so I'm going to temper myself a little bit. But one of the things I appreciate at a smaller, like you said, regional right. public school is I got an education. I didn't just get to sit in a 300 kid lecture hall and listen to some brilliant guy speak and right. then a TA gives me an exam. Right. I'm in a class with 15, 20 other students and a professor. And that professor, like you said, 
Most of them are at SFA because they want to teach, not right. because they want to be the most prestigious right. professor in their field. They want to teach. So I'm, I, I feel like it's a little counterintuitive to expect a better education from a small or lesser known school, but I feel like that's kind of how it came out. We went to right. different uh, foreign policy academic conferences and inevitably I felt like the kids from the SFA political science department were w more well-rounded and better versed in the, the text and the subject than kids who were coming in from West Point and Texas yeah. A&M and UT and Rice. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from we're getting taught by people who want to teach rather than people who want to get published and have to teach on the side. I, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And that in fact was the same example I was going to use that what, what justifies, uh, not what justifies me, but, but my belief in what we're doing, when I see you guys go out to conferences and, and knock out the kids from A&M and the kids from UT. I interned um, in, when I interned in Canada, most of that internship was Ohio state students. Right. And mm -hmm. I felt like, I was completely on an intellectual academic equal to them, despite their big fancy yeah. school. I, I, I think so. And I think you've picked out exactly the, the reason why. Um, I, I mean, I think we do a really good job of preparing you guys for the next level, whatever that is. Having said that, I now have crappy podcast and I run parking garages. So <laughs> I'm going to blame you for something. Well, in yeah. I mean, sometimes the world doesn't appreciate uh, uh, what we do. And, and some look. The raw material you get at SFA is a little different than the raw material you get at Ohio State. Right. Um, so you happen to be a really bright guy, but next to you could have been three or four people that, you know, I'm not even sure. Well, they, they smash a mean beer can off their right, head. Right, 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 right. <laughs> there you go. That's the best way to say it. So I, I, I'm going to get back. I want to get into more questions and political and kind of geopolitical discussions with you. Sure. But I wanted to... Talk a little bit about your education style, how you came by it, um, because so, I know several people are going to be listening to this who've taken your classes or who right. know who you are. Um, friends of mine, friends of yours who are going to see this and listen, and they already know this. But there's going to be people listening who have no idea who you are, no idea what SFA is. Um, one of the things I want people to take away from from this is an understanding for just how rigorous and and frankly a an SOB you could be academically <laughs> in the classroom. Um, do you want to talk about how you kind of weed your classes down or would you like me to give an example? That's give an example. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so on the first day of class, um, you were one of my first upper level classes, if not the first, and you sit down and you go through your, your syllabus and you've got a big, it's a what? Eight, 900 page reader. It's a yeah. compilation of, yeah. of, uh, political and foreign policy yeah. articles. Yeah. And you make clear on the first day that you're to read two or three every every class, and we're going to go over them. And if you aren't, if you're not prepared to present on your article, then you get a zero for the day and you're sent out of class. Right. And you don't assign readings. It's complete luck of the draw. You have an right. Altoids 10 with assigned seats, and we all called it the Altoids 10 of death. And at the beginning <laughs> of class... You pull a number out and right. you're, if you get called, you got to read. And right. if you're unprepared, it's a zero and you're gone. Some people had to do one article a semester. Some people, do people <laughs> ever get out with doing none? 
No, no, no. When, Do no you one... keep track of that or it just happens that way? No, at, uh, you know, this is the dirty little secret. Um, by after the midterm. Um, You're looking at your grade book to see who hasn't gone? Yeah, if somebody hasn't gone, I'm going to make sure everybody okay. gets a chance. Okay. Um, it, 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 it's random, but. I know it's random because I got called three straight classes yeah. when I was in your class. And, and usually it's, it's, it's not an issue. I mean, most of the time the numbers come up, everybody just gets called on. But if there's, you know, if we're in the last three weeks of class and Mr. Smith has never been called on, I'm going to make sure his number yeah. comes up. <laughs> and I, I remember you in just in the first the first intro class, you're you're talking about your expectations, and your expectations are very no BS. We're we're not cursing this episode because Dr. Kasich's kids are around, <laughs> so I'll do my best. Um, very no no BS. You lay out your expectations. You don't accept late work. You or you do, but your points are taken right. off. Um, and lots of points. Lots of points. Um, you just you really give no there's no way to skirt by in your class. Right. You're going to get the grade you deserved. Right. And for a half ass like me, <laughs> that it, it both scared me and it interested me because yeah. I realized, Oh, whatever I get in this guy's class, I'm going to earn. Right. I'm not going to be able to kind of snore my way through right. a B or a C. I'm either going to get an A in this guy's class or I'm going to walk out with an F. There's right. not a middle ground personally yeah. because that's not really how I work. Right. And the neat thing about your classes was everybody has hears from their friends. Oh, Dr. Kasich, he's a neat guy. He's funny. He's interesting. He's awesome. Everybody always wants to take the cool professor's class. Right. So day one, your class is 25, maybe 30 kids. After that first day one speech, you're down to 20, 25. Yeah. By the midterm, you're down to about eh, 15 to 20. If yeah. that, and then once people realize how not screwing around on the midterm you are, your yeah. class is down to 10, yeah. 8 to 12, 13 yeah. kids. That's right. Um, I, I say all that because personally I'm curious, did you set it up that way because you didn't want to deal with all those kids or was it just you have this high bar and y it's sink or swim in your class? Why do you set the class up the way you do? The, the, there's a bunch of stuff you asked in there. I know. Um, I don't go in with the purpose of getting the class down to 12 people. Although it, it makes it much more like a graduate seminar, which is nice. Um, but that's not the, uh, the, the idea. And I, and I would love to have everybody from day one all the way to the end. Uh, look, you, you see it every day in society. There are a lot of people out there who just really aren't going to make an effort, mm -hmm. much of an effort. And so there's no point in having those people in in class they're they're you know they're not they're not they're not adding anything to the class and so i'm going to call them um it's interesting uh, it's sort of an aside but i say all that on the first day and everybody shows up on the second day thinking well he wasn't serious about that the, the, and then the, the Altoids thing comes right, out. Right. The big drop doesn't happen after the first day. The big drop happens after the first week. Yeah. After the first class when I call somebody out and they're not prepared, or I, I call them out and we, you know, they think they're prepared. Well, they read the Huntington piece, and then once the sort of the, the Socratic dialogue starts, they fall apart very quickly. And they haven't read it carefully. And so the lesson there is, I don't just want you to read, read. I want you to read to understand. And that's another lesson that I think, oftentimes hasn't been taught until they reach me, which is fine. I mean, footnotes matter. Yeah. <laughs> and so you start reading footnotes and things like that. And, 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 and then we get down to the serious students. 
Um, and you know, there are always a few students who really aren't that serious, but they're not going to quit kind of like me in law school and kind of like <laughs> me in your class. Well, no, I mean, I think you, I think you became very serious. I mean, I think you were a good student. I don't remember what grades you got, but in your, I did well in your class. Yeah. Um, it was, I tell people, um, I was talking with a former student years just last weekend. Your class is the proudest B I've ever earned in my life. <laughs> yeah. I'm more proud of the B in your class than any A I've gotten in my entire academic career. Yeah. Um, because I knew I earned it. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and, and a B means a good. Yeah. It's, it's a good grade, which is, and I only got the B because I turned my paper in a daylight and you, you made you me go. pay for it. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, I did well in your class. Um, I think doing well in your class was motivation to, I don't know about necessarily try harder, but not to give up. If I right. can, if I can succeed in this guy's class, I can get a college degree. Right. Cause I was mm -hmm. still kind of on the fence of, do I want to do political science? Do mm -hmm. I want to try another degree? Is SFA right for me? I was in a lot of, and a lot of kids are at that age. They don't know what they want to do, right. where they want to do it. But your class kind of helped. Oh, I can, I can do this and I can do it here. And there's, I can excel at a high level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give one other anecdote and then we're going to kind of get into the, the political science side of stuff, the politics of, of things and your, your expertise. Um, you, you enjoy teaching. No question. And you, you have fun with it. Yeah. Um, when I was your instructor for intro, right. one of my favorite memories of you is I'm helping proctor your first exam and you <laughs> wave me up to the front of the class and, uh, you said, you whispered to me, Mr. Graves, do you want to see something awesome? And I, and I said, <laughs> well, yeah, of course you said, watch this. And you quietly walk up to the front of the class. You put both hands on the, the lectern while all of these freshmen are furiously scribbling away at their exams. <laughs> and you just kind of lift your head and you go, okay, time about eight minutes into the exam and you see 150 kids heads shoot up with whiplash <laughs> eyes big as saucers and you kind of let them stare at you for a split second then you smile and just say that look right there is my favorite part of the semester thank you carry on and you hear the whole class just let out a deep oh my god oh jesus and they continue and the smug look of satisfaction as you turn around it feels like you, you got a PhD strictly for that moment. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're joking around, but that, you know, even that, okay. So you I, don't take it too seriously, I guess is kind of well, my, my point. You're, you're right. But even that, and, and this is going to sound so, I, I hesitate to even say this cause it's going to sound so hokey, but everything I do in class is for a purpose. And, that's just to get everybody to relax a little bit yeah. for a lot of those kids. It's the first college exam ever and they're freaking out. And so that just gets them to take a deep breath and, and say, this isn't the end of the world. It's oh, they take just, a deep breath. All right. Well, they, <laughs> but I mean, you know, the stories you tell or, or, you know, the same class with you, um, it's a 75 minute class and 35 minutes in, I'll just tell some stupid story about my dog or something. And, the kids come to, or the students come to look forward to that moment. But what it really does is people can't concentrate for 75 minutes. Your brain's worth about 45 to 50 minutes yeah. of concentration. What that does is it gives everybody time to take a deep breath, settle down, recalibrate, and then focus again for the last 30 minutes in class. Now, 
that insight, that thinking, that train of thought, is that something you've studied learning and that's something, or is that just, you know what I've learned? If I go 75 minutes, I'm going to lose kids. So I've got to break it up. Is that something you were taught? Is that something you learned? Right. I, I took a psychology, I took a psychology course the first semester I went to college. So I went to college. I came out of high school with a two, three, six or two, three, three, something like that. Grade point average. Sounds you like know. my GPA at SFA pretty much. <laughs> I get a lot, a lot of trouble in high school and all, all, you know, the story. Um, the first semester I got an A, two B's and a C. And I think the C might've been in that psych course. It could have been a B in that course. I don't remember anymore. Um, it was a three O and I was proud of it, but that psych course taught me a lot about how the brain works. And so what that, that, that instance, I learned that from that class that people can only concentrate for about 45 or 50 minutes without a break. Um, I learned a lot of stuff about, you know, at least at that time, how they thought the brain worked and it helped me put together, uh, my study habits in college. Um, it, I had also convinced me I was completely neurotic because everything they mentioned in that class I had, you know, the counting and the whole nine yards. Um, but, but, but that class really helped me to learn how the brain works and has informed a lot of things I do, I think. If you... If you could teach anywhere and teach anything, is this, is this what it would be? Yeah. I mean, so t the, the subject matter, you know, I, I really, I want to teach a, a course on, uh, the Western Pacific U S strategy in the Western Pacific, but I think foreign policy slash national security that would, I can't imagine teaching anything better than that. Um, and you can you, kind of work that in at least. Yeah. And, and I can, you know, the, the, you hone in on different things. I'm fascinated by the Western Pacific right now, but in 10 years, it could be, well, I'm fascinated by, you know, something else. Or 10 years ago, it, it would have been maybe, maybe nuclear weapons. Um, so the, 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 the details change, but international security is what I want to do. National security is what I want to do. So I couldn't teach anything better than that. Um, as far as where, I mean, you know, East, East Texas, there's not a, not a lot going on here, and it sure would be nice to be closer to an urban area. Um, but, you know, th th it's it's a challenge once you reach my age and, and uh, sort of place where I am in my in my work, in my career. Um, so we, you know, we try to travel a lot. Um, I'll probably do another Fulbright before I finish. Um, and what is a Fulbright for people? So Fulbright is... is uh, sort of an, an award where you go and you teach in another country for a semester or for a year. I did one in Slovakia. I did uh, what they call a senior specialist award in Kazakhstan. That's a shorter award. And then I did a third one, a um, distinguished chair award where I went to the Philippines and lectured for two weeks there. So they can be short, but typically they're for six months and you spend, uh, you know, you live in the local country and teach there. And so that gives us a chance to see some other places and experience some other things. When I say us, I mean the family. Awesome. So I want to get in a little bit about your areas of expertise, foreign policy, national security. Right. You're also a bit of a, is it nuclear arms or nuclear pro proliferation? Uh, actually, it's probably nuclear strategy is really what it is. It's not proliferation. I'm, I'm, you know, like a lot of things, that's an important issue, but it's not the one that floats my boat. It's strategy. It's force structure. Those are the things that really, that I find interesting. Okay. 
does, I guess we'll just get into it. I kind of wanted to save it, but I feel like your expertise in knowing our conversations, I kind of want to just dive into the Trump presidency. Right. Um, we'll get into domestic policy here in a little bit, but from your area of expertise, the, the foreign policy side of things, national security, um, nuclear strategy and deterrence, how have you seen American foreign policy shift from Obama and even the Bush era to Trump? Have you seen a shift or has it not been as pronounced as maybe some people think it has? <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a, a complex question to me. Um, first of all, and I, I know I'm going to disappoint you a little bit in this and probably many of your lessons, listeners, excuse me. You know, I, I think the guy gets some things right. And I think he gets them right oftentimes for the wrong reason. Um, but I think his gut is right. Um, you know, everybody's been talking about China being a problem for 30 years now. Nobody did anything about it. Well, he did something about it. Um, now, did he do it the right way? Um, you know, I happen to be, I'm happy with him getting tough on China. Um, I'm happy with him uh, with the trade war. Um, I know that's that's not a popular thing to say, but... Uh, why are you happy with the trade war? Because of relative gains. Because uh, as long as we're trading with China according to their rules, uh, they're getting richer much faster. They're stealing technology. Um, they're cutting us out of their market. They, they, they've got. Uh, I sound like one of these lunatics, but <laughs> but but they've got a, you know a, a very clear how to get from point A to point B. And point B, by the way, is reasserting the Middle Kingdom as the the, the global power in the world. Um, and they've been open about this. I mean, um, uh, Dung has said, well, you know, hide, hide your capabilities until, until you're strong enough. But Xi Jinping now feels they're strong enough to be completely open about it. And, and 2008, the financial crisis in 2008, for a lot of Chinese leaders, this showed that the United States really was through. And so they've been open about their challenge. If we look at the South China Sea, if we look at the uh, 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 East China Sea, um, if we look even at their, with their relations with India. Um, backing off of that a little bit, though, to get back to Trump, I think he's been just woefully inadequate about how to get to, if China is a problem, how do you deal with China? Well, look, China's a big, powerful country that's getting more powerful all the time. You need alliances. And his unilateral approach to this is, is it's almost like he, he wants to shoot himself in both feet and still try to win the race. Um, it's just... Do you, think, do you think China is worth dealing with, but the way he's going about dealing with it is counterproductive? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way to say it. I mean, to me, our relationship with Europe and our relationship with Japan... Um, our relationship with the Philippines, which isn't, isn't Trump's fault. If we're going to counter but, their power, it has to be multilaterally, right, not just right, the U.S. Right. lobbing some silly tariffs. That's right. That's right. Alone, it's, it's going to be far more expensive and far more difficult to achieve than together. Do you think, you talked about 2008 kind of being a, a, a white flag moment sure. for America and China's eyes. Do you think Afghanistan and Iraq and kind of the waste of resources there exacerbated that or played a part? Do you think if we didn't get ourselves involved in those quagmires, our military and, and maybe our fiscal state is more situated to deal with China? Or do you think that they're relatively unrelated? No, I, I, I agree with you, Chris. I, 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 Afghanistan, Iraq, the whole, 
<laughs> we, we've talked about this at other times. I, I'm exaggerating this. Don't take this too literally. But the whole Middle East, let them figure it out. Um, look, Iran and Iraq balanced each other out for 40 years. <laughs> Leave it, you know. And if Israel wants help, Israel can take care of Israel. Israel doesn't need the United States to take care of it. Um, it I, I would, I would shrink our footprint dramatically. And if Japan wants oil, then Japan and Europe can get that. We don't need that oil. Yeah. They need that oil. Now, I'm, I'm simplifying things, and I understand that. Uh, but the, the, the whole, the Middle East has time and again, uh, you know, been, been, been quicksand. Well, and you and I have talked about it before that, and I kind of agree with your sentiment, there's humanitarian needs that we should be mindful of just as a nation of relative moral people. Right, right. Certain leaders accepted. But in terms of the Middle East and in the foreign policy in the Middle East, I feel like there's been meddling for generations dating right. back to the 1800s. I feel like almost the most rational course of action would be to step back, get out of it. It's going to be a very ugly 10, 20, 30, 40, right. maybe a generation of really ugly while all of those different tribal influences kind of fight their way Shake and figure out. out a stasis in the region. Right. Um, I think maybe we sit on the sidelines making sure nuclear weapons don't come into to play there. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I feel like we're just kind of kicking the can down the road, propping up these various regimes. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, it's the, 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 the cost benefit analysis uh, simply isn't there. It's tough to get out because when you get out, ISIS pops its head up or all things go to hell and uh, you know, every, well, you shouldn't have gotten out. You shouldn't have gotten out. So you're right in that you recognize, well, there's, it's going to get ugly. Um, and, and morally speaking, that's problematic. But uh, uh, rationally speaking, this is just a sinkhole. It just doesn't make sense to, to spend what we've spent and, and the lives and the treasure and, and the, the soft power costs. It's, it's, it, there's nothing positive, almost nothing positive that comes out of it. So I know you've got a little bit of a time crunch, so I don't get to dig into everything as in depth as I want to. Maybe we'll come back and try this again. But one thing I, I do kind of want to play with you is basically I want to ask questions of, of czar Dr. Kasich. You, you, you're in charge, you're making the right. decisions. I kind of want to go through a couple different regions and countries and just okay. get your take on if it was up to you, right. How you're going to handle it. Okay. Iran. How so, do you address the, the issue there? So well, what is the issue? Nuclear weapons? Uh, the U S relationship with Iran in general. It, it, Iran is, is, Iran is a natural ally for the United States. That's kind of what I've always thought. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it, it stuns me that we can't find some sort of uh, agreement whereby uh, uh, we respect their interest and they respect our interest. You know, I think it'd be a lot easier if we were out of the Middle East, by and large. Yeah. Um, Iran's got other problems, um, Russia among others. Um, the the whole Sunni world, uh, I, I I would and Sunnis. So for people listening who are less familiar with right. Islamic terrorism, most, if not almost all, of the Islamic terrorists we think of when we think of ISIS and Al Qaeda and random suicide bombers in America, they all come from a strain of Sunni Islam called Wahhabism. 
Um, or Salafism. Or Salafism. I kind of get Wahhabi and Salafi mixed up. Right. Well, they're, they're, they're entangled. Yeah. Shia is the other major Islamic uh, branch, we'll right. call it. And uh, other than some, some issues in the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Iran, right. Iran, uh, they, they're not a Islamic terror organization in the same reach, the same goals as the Sunnis. So kind of basically elaborating what you're saying about the Iranians being a great ally, they're not promoting the international terrorism to the same reaches that 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 that's true the 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 sunni terrorist problem the uh the salafi the violent salafi problem is sunni in nature although they did learn some things from the iranians and from uh shia terrorists in the in the late 70s and early 80s um but let's not go too far i mean the iranians are anti-status quo um it is a theocratic regime um it it, it it's not somebody that that I want to be like, um, but I think I think we could come to some agreements about uh, uh, what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior, and basically let them let them run their country the way they want to run their country. I was I was listening to a podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about the uh, U.S. ambassador. I believe I think he had several different countries that he was mm-hmm. an ambassador he was the ambassador to saudi arabia for a while and prior to the iraq war i think this was after 9 11 before iraq got kicked off he was in i believe it was switzerland mm-hmm. for some conference some talk and some moderate uh iranian diplomats came and pulled him aside and said hey we need to talk to you in private pulled him aside talked to him in private and said hey we are willing to give you all of the Taliban command, all their names, where you can find them, mm-hmm. you can go scoop them up and end it. Because Iran naturally saw the humanitarian and geopolitical problem of the war in Afghanistan mm-hmm. right next door to them. Mm-hmm. So these moderate uh, diplomats got approval from uh, the Shah mm-hmm. and them to talk to the U.S. Tried to basically arrange this deal where, hey, here's all of the Taliban leadership. They'll probably give you Bin Laden if you can get them. Here they are. And I wanted to say it was not a week later, Bush goes up with the State of the Union and does his axis of evil, mm-hmm. throws Iran in the mix. Mm-hmm. These moderate uh, Iranians go back to the uh, the diplomat and the ambassador and said, you just made us look like a fool. We really mm-hmm. stuck our neck out with our leadership to get this deal with you. And right. then a week later, you're calling us part of your axis of evil right. deals off and the cooperation between the U S and Iran basically died right there after that state of the union speech. I, I hadn't heard that story, but I know that after nine 11, Iran was cooperative, uh, for some time. And of course, you know, some of, um, bin Laden's fa- family was arrested. Uh, like arrested's a harsh word. Put put, put put under polite, house arrest, politely detained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Um, I mean, I think I think there there there's always opportunities missed in politics, um, and and you know cooperation with Iran after nine eleven. You know, things could have gone so many different ways after nine eleven. There were so many opportunities that that were missed. Um, you know, Cheney's got sort of one response. 
yeah. he's, he's uh, invaded. Yeah, kind of like Bolton. Uh, he scares me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so back to Zarkasic. So, Iran, you feel like you can reach or try to reach some kind of agreement. What do you do? I know personally, just from talking with you, that, and you've already talked about it here, China is a big concern for you. Right. You talked about a little bit of what you agreed with Trump, a little bit about what you disagreed with Trump. What do you think is the right course of action for dealing with China and their growing geopolitical influence and desire to wield that? Uh, you know, here's what we tried to do. The, the plan was uh, uh, start trading with China and that capitalist countries eventually become democratic. That's that was uh, one of those one of those sort of um, constants in foreign yeah, policy. Yeah, yeah, well, in like political science, like uh, democracies don't fight each other. Right. Um, and and so we tried that for thirty or forty one well, forty years, uh, and you know what? It didn't work. They've become more authoritarian, not less authoritarian. Um, they they now offer uh, a viable alternative to uh, liberal democracy or liberal capitalism or whatever you want to call it, uh, which is authoritarian capitalism, and. I'm not saying we can't coexist, but to continue to trade and strengthen them and, 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 and allow them to steal technology and whatnot, that's just a fool's errand as far as I'm concerned. Um, let's, let's call them what they are, which is uh, a competitor, um, a pure competitor, and, and one that, 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 you know, we haven't talked about the liberal international system yet, but clearly they have a different view of what the organizing features of the world would be. Now, I know that the, you know, the liberal international system is not all liberal, it's not all international, it's uh, you know, all these things, um, but we've got some rules that we've put in place uh, since World War II that, and, and we've talked about you know, why has the world seen such growth and such a, a reduction in morality, mortality rates and so forth and so on. And you've made the argument that it's, it's just technological advancements, but I think the, the, the rules to the system have had a lot to do with, with how great it's been since 1945. And I know people say, well, well, there's all these wars and everything, but we're living in the best time ever. Yeah. It's the best time you, to be a human being. And, and the system helped to do that. And the Chinese don't like the system because it's a rules-based system and they don't want to follow rules. Do you, have you read Steven Pinker at all? No. Are you familiar with him? No, I'm not. He's a say he's a historian maybe mm -hmm. um he's a professor and he basically makes the argument like you're saying that this is the safest healthiest most prosperous right. time basically all of the doomsday and doom and gloom we hear in the media it's all basically fault there's still bad things going on there right. always will be but when you look at the number of wars that happened right. a thousand a hundred right. 75 years ago the numbers are fewer. The wars we do yeah. have, the deaths are fewer. The deaths from starvation and malnutrition are less. Basically, every measure of of how a society is is performing, is doing, right. has improved right. and continues to improve. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I think that's right. And, but and you think it's because largely of the liberal democracy, liberal. I think a, a, a rules-based international system had a lot to do with that. Um, Non-discriminatory trade, um, uh, uh, 
just norms and expectations. I know I sound like 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 I can bury or somebody which I can't stand him, um, but 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 I do see value in the states of the world following a set of rules. L look at look at how the Europeans interact with one another. Um, ever ever you know okay so you have World War II and afterwards you say well we're not going to go and punish people again. We're going to create a system where everybody benefits. Now, I know the EU's got problems. But I think that uh, the notion of France and Germany going to war again is, is ludicrous. None of us even think about that. Uh, so I think there's real value to, to a rules-based system. Because rules, a rule-based system says that we all follow the same rules and then we have some impartial arbiter when there's a disagreement. But the... I, I know I'm about to sound like a conservative but we, we've both been forced to I flip know. a little bit in this conversation like that's one reason i like you so much is you always have me wearing the other shoe um you talk about rules and norms but in terms of enforcement mechanisms internationally there really aren't they're very few any and the ones well, that are don't really have teeth well that's not entirely true so so i would i would classify the system as very early in its in its uh, life, um, but I think that two examples I can give you, both of which are under stress right now, um, but which worked well for some time. One is the WTO and the dispute panels, um, which the United States is dismantling right now. Another example of, of Trump going off the rails. Um, the other is uh, the United Nations uh, uh, Law of the Sea Treaty. Um, again, you've got an arbitration. You've got arbitration panels. Now you're right; there aren't teeth behind that. But part it's of it's very easy for an actor like China to go eh, right, whatever. Right. But part, I mean, part of what what a, what a a mature system of rules is, is that when you go to court and you get sued and you lose, you comply with 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 that result. And there's always people that don't comply. But as this thing grows over time. Uh, it becomes more and more uh, uh, normal, and with, with the sort of more and more people follow the expectations because that's what you do. Because that's that's why we don't all run through red lights. Um, I, I go all the way back to the Clinton administration. During the Clinton administration uh, in in Yugoslavia, uh, there was a, a, a time to sort of expand international law uh, by following um, certain procedures and not acting unilaterally. And I think Clinton missed an opportunity to do that, to expand international law and to show that the most powerful uh, uh, state on, on earth was willing to subsume itself at some level to, to rules and, 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 and norms. Um, then, you know, then uh, uh, GW uh, just went completely off the tracks, acting unilaterally, ignoring you know, all sorts of well, human rights and how do you treat prisoners and things like that. Um, Obama, on the other hand, was so subservient isn't the right word, but, but wanted so bad to make the system work that he didn't respond unilaterally when, when, when he needed to, which was in the South China Sea to me. Um, so I, I think we're, I, I know this is kind of, kind of confusing, and I don't mean it to be. I think we're at a place where the, the liberal international system has seen better days. It's under stress from us. It's under stress from populism. It's under stress from China. And, and you know, you talked about being the czar earlier. To me, I think this is the time to double down, reinforce, and strengthen 
the liberal international system, and not just for the United States, but Japan and Europe and Australia and, and, and the group that has held it together for the last 50, 70 years. This is the time to get behind it rather than be tossing it aside. It strengthens all of those liberal states if they work toward that system. Um, if we do it alone, what we've got is small individual uh, uh, attempts at facing down threats, and, and it's more expensive, and it's less likely to succeed. Is that too abstract? No. no I mean, yeah. Not for me. I get it. Yeah. But. yeah. Somebody, somebody just turned off the podcast. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what time is it? I don't... It's uh, 4.15. I was okay. going to wrap up in about five minutes. Okay, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, I guess I want to, given our slight time crunch... Uh, I, I kind of want your opinion on Trump domestically. That, I know that's not necessarily your wheelhouse, but you know yeah. enough to speak on it. And right. Give me your opinions. I mean, he's just such a horrible human being. He's just, you know, the, the most insecure narcissist you could imagine. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to to have a clown like this running the country is... It's just so appalling to me, um, whether, whether, not whatever his policies are, to have that, you know, when I was a kid, you say, well, you can grow up and be president of the United States. And okay, Richard Nixon wasn't a very good example, but Kennedy sure as hell was. Well, and even Nixon, he comported himself in a strategically, yeah, foreign yeah, policy yeah. wise. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, 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 I agreed with this pers form. Personally, yeah, he was an insecure head case, and yeah. that's what got him into a show. But right. As a leader of the country, you could do worse. Right. And he's the worst example you can come up with. Um, you know, Bush the first is a guy that like his policies or dislike his policies. You respect the guy. Um, I don't know why people get after Obama the way they do. I mean, just a decent human being as, as far what well, again, I, I completely disagree with how he handled the South China Sea. But he's somebody I could introduce my children to and, and, and be pleased wouldn't let Donald Trump anywhere near anyone in my family. No. I mean, he's, a, he's an awful, awful human being. And he's always been an awful human being. He has always been an awful. And, uh, yeah, no, no question. Um, as far as, you know, domestic policy, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have feelings about health care the way you do. And I understand why you, you've got, you're more concerned about issues like that. But I will say this, the budget, I was concerned about the budget before oh, he's, him he's and, nuked that oh man yeah just just uh, oh boy i mean the, the 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 debt and deficit are are growing at astronomical levels and and the thing is you don't get a warning when it goes bad greece or italy when it goes bad it goes bad you don't get time to fix it the time to fix it is now not when, when things well get bad. and what's extra frustrating and i got into this with one of your fellows your former students who mm -hmm. i had on the podcast I understand. I, I'm. I think economically, there's a case for deficit spending and sure. debts, and I don't think it needs to be paid off. I think that actually creates its own issues. Uh -huh. There's a way to use debts and deficit to help moderate and control sure. inflation. You can sure. kind of balance the two out. Having said that, good fiscal policy is when the economy is booming. That's when you raise taxes and you try to get spending and deficits under control. Right. When the economy needs a jump that's when right. you might kick up the deficit spending sure. a little bit trump's really kind of the worst of both worlds because you're right. jacking up deficits during a time of economic growth where right. you really don't need the deficit spending as much 
And it's, I personally, and you could tell me if you, you've been around a little bit longer than I have, <laughs> but I have, for the past couple of years, I believe the conservative, particularly the GOP philosophy, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy of they get into office, they cut taxes, they say, look how bad government is. Government can't do anything right. Look at all right. these deficits. Right. And then they use that as rationale for more cutting and government can't do anything. They come in, they do a bad job and then turn around and say, look at how bad government is doing a job. Right, right, right. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think the Republican premises of governance, a lot of it's lies. Um, and, 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 and based on fear. And, and that's, you know, I think that's really, uh, they've done political psychology studies on the, a conservative, not a Republican, but a ideological conservative response to fear stimuli mm -hmm. more serious and harder and more frequently than somebody of a liberal ideology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the fear part of your brain triggering is stronger in a conservative, and you can do tests on fear and stimuli, mm -hmm. and I think it was something 85, 90% accuracy hmm. predict whether that person fell on the conservative or liberal side of the scale. It, 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 it's, it's hard for me to, to uh, you know, I considered myself conservative for many years. Um, certainly, I'm still a fiscal conservative. Um, but the policies underlying the GOP seem to change uh, uh, so often that I don't really know what it means anymore. Um, I do know that fear seems to be a big part of their message. And, and you know, that uh, we're tearing ourselves apart in the country. Uh, you know, who's an American, who's not an American? Well, gee, uh, to me, if if you're here and you're paying taxes and and uh, uh, you're willing to uh, uh, serve the country in some way, shape, or form, you're an American. We should want people like that, not not chase them away. Um, it's 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 not just frustrating, but it's a little bit scary. The 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 it's a lot scary. The path we're on right now. Well, on that. Lovely, lovely <laughs> note. Just like I end every class. <laughs> yeah, right. We got to get you out of here. Um, All right. I appreciate you coming on. I'm, Thank you for having me. I'm probably going to pest you again for a part two. I feel like we've still got plenty to cover. Next time, there'll probably be more booze involved. Hopefully. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, if, if anybody at all listens to it, then happy to do it. If nobody wants to hear this nonsense, I, it, I don't want to. I had fun. That's really what matters. <laughs> well, you can always come up and have a beer. You know that. Always. Dr. Kasich, thanks for coming on the, uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Good luck. Good luck.